0: Welcome to the introductory lecture on Dante's Paradiso, cantos one through five, the sphere of the moon. This will be the first uh, lecture on this, so this will be a part one. Probably we'll do this in two parts, possibly we'll do it in three, we do have some time this week. Alright, so, let's start with some very basic facts about Dante's paradise, or his paradiso to say it in Italian, and how it differs from the purgatorio, and how it's similar to the inferno in some ways. So. First major difference between the Inferno, Purgatorio, and the Paradiso is the guide. Obviously, Virgil, with the help in the Purgatorio, also of Statius, was our guide all the way through the very first two cantos of the Purgatorio. In fact, he disappeared very late on in the Purgatorio and was replaced by Beatrice. Now, Often scholars in the past have suggested that what Virgil represents in this text, if you understand it allegorically, as a symbol for something else, is reason without the light of faith guiding it. And so often scholars have been interpreted Beatrice to represent the light of faith, which leads one towards the truth or that which is called God. I think that this is a sort of crude and unsophisticated interpretation, however. What I would say is more likely is that what Beatrice represents is not faith, but reason or intelligence, which is enlightened by truth, and that that is why she is constantly shown as staring at the light of truth in heaven. In fact, you will notice constantly that Dante looks at Beatrice, Beatrice looks at some source of light or truth. It is almost as if what Dante is... Uh, looking at, when he looks at Beatrice, is he is consulting his own mind's perception of the truth. And I would add to this interpretation that it is a little bit unclear based on Dante's very first question, the Paradiso of, how is it that I can be in paradise if paradise is perfect and without matter, and I am a human who has a body and a body is made of matter? How can I move up here? The idea seems to be that Dante is not moving his physical body in paradise, because something about paradise is non-physical. That seems to be something of an immaterial place. This is based on Aristotelian cosmology, the ideas that Aristotle, an ancient philosopher from, uh, well, we say Athens, though he wasn't born there, um, he suggested that the stars and the planets above in the sky were angels and gods. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. They show up every night. They're constant they seem to go along a track in the sky they move or at least they appeared to move to ancients and medievals in perfect circles which were considered since the time of plato images of perfection and, you know uh, the old idea in art was that you are a master artist when you can draw a perfect circle now uh, and so just to move on to the next point and i will talk a little bit more about that in the next slides when i talk about the Ptolemaic world system as opposed to the Copernican one that we know so well. Unlike the devils or the pagan gods who allowed Dante through gates and inferno, and then angels who would whisper to him the truth of his location and help him to move forward in the purgatorio, it will be God who moves Dante from sphere to sphere immediately. And something just interesting to look for is that it is generally right after Dante has learned a lesson. After he has learned what it is he needs to learn from one sphere, that he moves to another. And so if you were thinking very critically about this text, you might say, Mr. Schmidt, do you think the Paradiso is a text on how when you move, that when you develop your mind as a human, you move up a static level of concepts, so that when you're at one level, you can only understand one level of idea. And when you move up to the next level, you can understand the next level. I would say, yes, that does seem to be what Dante is doing here. What he seems to be suggesting is that what differentiates humans most is their ability to see into the light of truth. And you might say, do you think that's true, Mr. Schmidt? And I would say, well, you might consider how our society is structured. That which you know and that which you can do generally determines what your profession is and how much income you bring home. The major differences between humans don't tend to be whether they have fingers or hands or how tall they are, but what it is that they are capable of doing based on their skills that they have developed with their individual intellectual capacities. And that doesn't seem to be wrong. All right. The last little bit here is there is no transformation nor change in paradise. It is an afterlife. and As an afterlife, everything there has already happened. You might consider it A storehouse or a treasure house, a cave of wonders of all the best stories of humans who have been successful in that which they attempt to do. Whereas you might now consider the Inferno a storehouse or a cave of wonders of all the stories of those who fell from their paths, who failed to get that which they wanted in their life. And you might start to understand the major project of Dante and of the West here. We have collected, or at least Dante had collected at this time, All the stories he had ever heard about people who had failed, all the stories he had ever heard about the people that had succeeded, he split them into two different canticles, those in the Paradiso and those in the Inferno. Why? Well, the idea seems to be that those things, those things that he calls sins, which make one person fail, also make who fail? Every person. Just like the qualities which make someone successful and capable of Paradiso don't make simply one person successful, but all people successful. And you might say, Mr. Schmidt, why might you believe that claim to be true? And I'd say, because we understand the meaning of stories. What is the point of telling a story if not to offer a lesson to someone that they do not have to learn themselves? What would be the point of telling stories about people that achieve ultimate success compared to ultimate failure if not to persuade you that one path might be to your benefit and the people around you, your society, and one to your detriment. And so, if that is true, and I would say that that is my hypothesis here, we're gonna be seeing stories about how people get what they want in this world, in the Paradiso. And so this may very well be the very most important canticle that we read. That said, unfortunately and sadly, it seems to be the one that is rarest read by people these days. Most people, uh, and this is a romantic conceit, this comes from the 19th century, they only ever read the Inferno. So which stories do they get to read, which then shape their view of reality? The stories about people who fail. So what do they think about the nature of reality, of course? Reality is a place full of darkness, evil, and human betrayal. It's like, that's only part of the story. Too bad for those that don't move forward. All right couple of facts about the place itself that we're going to be. Paradise, heaven. You might be imagining sort of an Edenic garden, and you would be right if you were imagining terrestrial paradise on the top of the mountain of purgatory. However, where we're going is to the stars, and specifically to the planets. Dante's time, they believed in what is called geocentric world model. A world where Earth was at the center of all things because, well, that's where humans were. Humans were made by God, and therefore humans were the most important and interesting things in the universe. And, well, as far as we know, even with a heliocentric model of the universe, that is still true. We don't know uh, whether we're the only creatures around, but we do know that of all the millions of planets and galaxies that we've seen, we are still the only sentient life we know of, and we've really been looking. So that said, this is the structure of the Ptolemaic universe. Earth is at the center. The moon is the first planet next to that. That will be the first sphere of heaven. We're going to go from inside out, moving out. Then Mercury, fastest of planets based on Hermes, fastest of gods. Then Venus, then the sun. The sun occupies, interestingly enough, the place that Earth actually occupies going around the Sun, the fourth circle or sphere. Then we will go to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then three really weird outside circles. The first of the outside circles will be the constellations, or the fixed stars. As they're called, the second will be called the crystalline heaven or the primum mobile. And then the third, final one, which is sometimes described as the entirety of the cosmos itself, containing all things and also the mind of God, is called the empyrean. And notice in the empyrean that word pyre, like purgatory, that word for fire, the fire within, suggesting that perhaps the order of the cosmos is also represented not only macrocosmically. But microcosmically in view. Interestingly enough. All right, let's keep moving. Here's another image. I really like this, I think it's very pretty. Of course, Earth here is represented as sort of having a garden. You can see where the constellations are. You can see where the Prima Mobile is, or the Crystallinum, or the Crystalline Heaven, uh, where the Prima Mobile is, and then the Imperium on the outside. Here's another image in fact at my home in nashville i actually have this image framed above my bed it's very beautiful very beautiful hmm. all right let's talk about the moon itself so a couple things to know about this sphere and these are the sorts of things that we are going to learn at the beginning of each sphere so the moon what sorts of people are in the moon Oathbreakers. and you might say mr schmidt i thought this was a place for rewards and success for people that did not fail and I'd say yes however the first three spheres of Paradiso are those who were virtuous though marred by vice or marred by sin so this this sphere is those who were constant but were marred by a little bit of inconsistency and a little bit of inconstancy and you might you're a student how many of you get 100 percent on every single assignment you ever do? And yet, how many of you will still get A's? Many of you. And so the idea seems to be that as a human, are you still good or potentially successful if you're mostly good and make a couple mistakes? Well, we'll really get into that when Dante will almost explicitly ask this question of Beatrice when he encounters Piccarda Donati, our third Donati, um, uh, as well as um, Empress Constance. Alright, so our theme here is going to be constancy or consistency. The virtue, which is the exemplary virtue of the moon, is faith. Because that which keeps one constant is faith that that which one is doing is the right thing to do, or that which one is doing has value, or that which one is doing will bear fruit because in any endeavor, so long as you're a human who exists in space time, do you know what the outcome of any action you take will be 100% ever? Answer is no, no, because you cannot predict the future. That's right, even though many things that you might do will have likely outcomes based on what we know. All right, two concepts that are going to be extremely valuable here. The absolute will as compared to the contingent will. I will explain these when I explain um, uh, Empress constants and um, Piccardo Donati. But the basic idea is that the absolute will is the will of God. That it is a will that remains constant no matter what and is always pushing in the same direction. Sort of like light, which is unreflected. The contingent will seems to be the will of man. The reason why Dante hypothesizes the idea of two wills is that what makes for a good human life for him is that, well, if there's the will of God, and it is perfect, and it wants the best always, well, then what should a human try to reflect and emulate? The will of the divine. However, since a human is finite material, subject to corruption, and is incapable of doing all things at all times, well, then a human has to figure out how to, uh, hmm, how do I say this? To reduce the absolute will into contingent form. A human has to figure out how to manifest the absolute will in their particular circumstances in life. And that might be very different. You might be a carpenter and build houses very well. I might be a teacher and teach very well. You might be a firefighter and put out fires very well. Our specific actions during the day are very different. Very bizarrely different. I mean, if you lived in modern-day Turkey, you might be a shepherd. And you might deal with some sheep all day. If you were me and you teach every day, you might hold a digital wand. It magically makes a screen change images while talking to young people who look confused at you. Very different ways of living, and yet, both correct in their own ways. All right, and the people you'll need to know are Piccardo Donati. Of course, we know that the Donati family, we've been seeing plenty of them. We know that Gemma Donati, of course, was Dante's wife. We know that we saw Foresi Donati, who, recall, he had those tinsoni with... Uh, Dante in the Purgatorio. He was the one in the same canto as Arno Daniel amongst the lustful, who uh, who uh, Don, who said that Dante's father uh, was trying to go through a graveyard looking for money, and Dante said that Ferraci was you know overweight, uh, and so uh, that was sort of funny. They were like young men. Also, recall recalled that there was Corso Donati down in Hell, and so we've seen that. Does it? Does who your family is and who you're related to determine where you go in the afterlife according to Dante? No. Do the stars determine where you go to? No. What determines where you go for an afterlife for Dante? Your own your own choices. And that is something that he is going to reaffirm over and over again in heaven, in the Paradiso, that it's your choices, it's your choices. It's your choices that get you where you're going. And if I were a young person, thinking about the future, and thinking about my future specifically, what do you think gets you to your ideal future? Obviously, your choices. That's right. That's exactly right. And that is what he's saying. And so Dante is very much a poet of personal responsibility, which I think is sort of uplifting, because who do you want to be in control of your fate? Yourself, probably, yourself, especially as Americans. All right. In this first sphere of paradise, don't worry about writing this, the moon, we encounter our first cadre, that means uh, compartment, of difficult philosophical questions beyond those simple ones of how one moves in paradise and how a body would move in it. So, the first question, I think, is a very high school sort of question. Dante says, and here I'll give you a quick picture, look at this, this is the moon, this is how the moon looks in the sky. Now, if it were perfect, I would imagine that it would be perfectly white out there. Except for even to my naked eye, what can I obviously see on this moon? Dark spots. Ooh. Dark spots. A dark spot seems to be a suggestion of an imperfection on the moon. If there's an imperfection on the moon, the moon's made out of matter. It cannot be perfect. It cannot be a part of heaven. Ooh, Dante's very smart. He follows that line of reasoning, that sounds correct, right? Well, it's very good reasoning. That said, Beatrice has a very clever answer for him. She says, well, the moon, what you call the moon, which you think is a unity, just one large sphere, is actually a diversity, a plurality, of many elect spirits all next to each other. Have you ever been in front of an image have you ever seen one of those images, which is like a giant image, but it's made up of many smaller ones before, any of you? Do you, Anybody know a famous version of that? I can't think of one off the top of my head. I know I've seen them many times. But like, I know an Im- there's like a very famous image of a Pink Floyd, um, of a Pink Floyd-like album cover that is made up itself of smaller album covers, which I thought was very interesting. Well, that's the idea behind the moon. There's not just a moon. There are thousands and thousands of elect souls that are all gathered together in a spherical formation. And so you say, yeah, okay, Mr. Schmidt, but how does that explain the dark spots? And I say, ah, that's, that's very interesting. In fact, Beatrice gives a very interesting explanation for this, and we should have to get physical here. She says, if you were to take three mirrors, put two the same distance away from you, one farther away from you, and you were to shine a light on each of them, they would remain Equally bright, though one would be farther, and another would, or one would appear smaller than the other two, and so you think, oh well, well then that wouldn't produce any additional darkness, just differences in the size of the light. That's excuse me. That is uh, the idea that, that is Beatrice's responses, response to Dante's idea that the moon is physical. Well, she says, hmm, that's not actually quite right, because what you think is dark is actually relatively dark compared to the other lights. And so what does that mean? It means this, even amongst the elect spirits in the moon, even a lot amongst those who are in heaven, there are different luminosities, there are different brightnesses of light, suggesting that some people shine brighter than other people and that because some shine brighter, some lights appear darker than others. And though obviously we know at this time that that is not the truth of what the moon is. The moon is obviously physical. We've been there. <laughs> We've had people put a flag on there. In fact, and last week, something very interesting regarding the moon happened. Do all of you know that China, just for the first time, is the first country ever to have landed? I can't recall whether it was a person or an object on the far side of the moon. And so we know now that the moon is obviously material. That said, what point is Dante trying to make? He's trying to say that even though people have different levels of abilities, it is not your level of ability which gets you to heaven, but how well you use the abilities which you have, which I think is a very fair and interesting way to perceive people. It doesn't matter whether you're this smart, this skilled, this strong, it matters how well you use what you've got. I think that's, um, you know, I consider that, I would say, a very even-handed and fair way to look at humans, especially at his time in the Middle Ages, which is highly hierarchical. All right. And this is essentially what I say here. All the souls of the moon, and in paradise, therefore, are perfect in accordance with their own natures. But some are more perfect than others. In the same way that you might do your best as a basketball player, but LeBron James, doing his best, might still outperform you. Can you do better than you are doing? No. Can other people do better than you? Yes, of course. Of course. And so, some accepted and lived by their own natures better than others. Else there would have been no free choice, and humans would be just different in quality based on their natures alone like angels. All right, cool, cool. You don't need to write that. Next, let's meet a couple people in heaven. This will be our last slide of the day because we're getting near that time. We meet two people. What is their job? This is important to know. They are nuns, so-called brides of Christ. They're called brides of Christ, at least nuns. Uh, Used to be, they still are, called brides of Christ because the idea is that they married the church or that they they married the logos. They married the figure of the sun. Jesus they have an intangible abstract symbol as their husband and so they remain constant and faithful to an idea and thus they act in accordance with that idea and the idea behind it is once you become a nun just like once you marry you're in it for life ah but I recall this sphere is the sphere of oath breakers and so if they made this oath be married to the church or the principal behind the church the Logos of Jesus they must have at some point broken this oath and now there is a wrinkle to this question neither of these women Piccarda Donati or Empress Constance chose to leave their convents this is a very important point they were forced to leave for differing reasons if you want to look for the reasons. You can check uh, the notes. I believe Constance needed to get married to somebody for some reason. I do not recall why uh, Donati was taken. There's a very brief explanation, not much of one given in the text. And so Dante actually ends up asking a very, I would say, thorny question based on this. He says, hmm, hmm if these women were forced to leave their convents, why is it that they're punished by being oath breakers rather than being at a higher place in heaven? so there are two responses that Beatrice gives to this. The first one is this, no spirits in heaven are being punished and none of them long for anything more than they have because their natures are fulfilled in accordance with their utmost perfection. Meaning that they've gotten as much as they want and they want no more. They don't have envy. They don't have jealousy for each other. Okay, okay, that that sort of makes sense on the one hand. But how is it that these souls would be lower in rank or lower in the spheres of heaven because other people forced them against their will to break their oath? Well, Dante says, hmm. If that were the case, they would be blameless if they were purely forced to leave and they had no choice in the matter. However, neither of these women, even after they were forced to leave, went back, which might make you arch an eyebrow and say, huh, if they were taken from the convent and eventually each of them had a chance to go back, what question arises within all our minds? Why did you not go back? And so Dante says, it's not so much that, or rather Beatrice says, it's not so much that they are being blamed for not going back, so much as they are not entirely blameless for leaving in the first place. And he gives examples, too. He, uh, I, I don't know if I, I have them here. Yes, Lawrence and Mucius. Uh, Lawrence, I believe, was grilled for what he believed, grilled alive, um, and Mucius was a man who, uh, something regarding his hand, his hand had done something uh, licentious, and so he cut it off. And so the idea seems to be that these men sustained injury and pain for that which they believed, that rather than break their oaths, they would rather endure pain and die, the idea being that had these two women, Empress Constance and Piccarda Donati, really, really, really wanted to catch their vow, they could have died for it. That said, Dante does not suggest that as a course of action. One last thing I'll just say today is that he does make some room for sympathy for humans. Not very easy to ask people to die for oaths they make. And so he suggests this finally, he says, "Well." If you think about the, the example of Iphigenia, Iphigenia, of course, was the daughter of Agamemnon who was sacrificed at Aulis to get favorable winds to take the Achaeans from Aulis to Troy. And you think of, uh, I think the other, the other instance was that of Jephthah, an Old Testament figure. One thing that can keep you from keeping your oaths is that one, one provision uh, is this if what you promise when you make an oath to somebody will result in an outcome that is worse than not keeping the promise, don't do it. And so the idea is that if Agamemnon promised all the, all the Achaeans they should go to Troy, but that means he should kill his daughter, what should he not do even though he made a promise? Kill his own daughter. And in fact, Dante says, you know what, if you need some guidance on this, check the Old Testament, Check the, check the New Testament or use the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd, of course, is that which guides you best. As a human, what guides you best? Your mind, your reasoning, your intelligence. So he says, be smart about it. Don't keep bad oaths. I think, well, does that sound like bad advice to any of you? All right, we'll talk a little bit more about the absolute will, the contingent will tomorrow. There's one last concept here that I didn't get to. We'll talk a little bit about human perception and how that works. Uh, Dante's going to make some really interesting claims. Oh, yes, and we will also talk about the exact criteria by which uh, one can change a vow for Dante. Apparently, if you want to change, if you make a promise to give something to somebody, the only thing you can do to change that promise is give them more than what you originally offered. So if you say you're going to give me a dollar and then say, actually, I have to change that because I don't have any money, the only acceptable replacement for that dollar is a dollar fifty, according to Dante. And if you've ever had a promise broken to you, you probably believe that truth. There's nothing worse than not getting what you agreed for, or agreed to get. All right.